0: Yeah, Yeah. cool. Thank you. So we're in um, a company called TESM, and they're an international recycler. Um, So we're at one of their facilities, probably the main facility in Australia, actually out of Sydney. And it accepts a variety of uh, e-waste for either repurposing or recycling.
1: This is Spiro Kalos, and Spiro is the manager of something called Mobile Muster. And so what do they... recycle in terms of e-waste?
0: The facility here will handle mobile phones, um, which is the mobile muster program. Uh, It also does printers, cartridges, TVs, computers. Anything that is uh, electronic waste can actually be recycled, so this facility can handle it
2: all.
1: Walking around this place is like walking around the most organised junkyard in the world. It's essentially a massive shed that has different areas allocated for different types of e-waste. Spots for washing machines, spots for TVs... But I was here to talk to Spiro about mobile phones. So we walked over to the snug, cornered off section that homes Mobile Muster. And as you probably imagined, there are a lot of mobile phones.
0: So we get, to give you an idea, we get about 6,000 to 7,000 kilos of mobile phone components come through the program every month.
1: That's the equivalent of four average sized cars every month. So every year, Spiro will have 72 tonnes of old mobile phones coming his way, or 48 cars a year.
0: The role that the team plays here is uh, obviously checking everything, weighing everything in, uh, and then they dismantle everything before it goes further downstream for
1: processing. And the dismantling is Shirley's job, one of Tessam's employees. Sorry, Hi, I'm Jake. Nice to meet you. Um, what are you doing? I, I, are you the one who's, like, organising all the different stuff and putting it into its place? Yep. Yep. So we take
0: everything apart. Whatever comes in the boxes, I open the box and take it apart. Like, so battery, SIM cards, memory cards.
1: So do you have a phone to take apart? i there's a stack of unopened boxes piled next to Shelley's workspace. So she begins to rip open the boxes and starts taking apart the phones. Oh, and you just kind of use a screwdriver.
3: It's good plastic.
1: When she's separating them, she'll pop the parts into another set of boxes on the other side of her workspace. These boxes have little signs on them for different parts of the phone, like the batteries, the circuit boards and the screens.
4: check the SIM card and memory card is there?
1: And how many of these do you normally go through a day?
0: Um, More than 100 phones. Depends on the load.
1: When Shelley's done with those, she'll get what's in the little boxes and throw those parts into larger, big crates that are sitting around the area in Mobile Muster.
0: So it'll get separated into its batteries, glass, uh, the circuit boards uh, and the variety of other components.
1: Then they're ready to be shipped off for processing. And it's this processing that is the most important part. By recycling it, you're doing a number of things. One, you're stopping it from unnecessarily going to landfill. Two, you're preventing those devices from breaking down in the ground and releasing all sorts of toxic chemicals. And three, you're helping to recover the materials used to make that device so they can be used again.
0: Uh, from the phone batteries, there's obviously the lithium-ion and some metals uh, that can actually be recovered. If you look at the mobile phone itself, the circuit boards is where, uh, I guess, all the precious metals are, the palladium, the silver, the copper, the steel, uh, and there is an element of gold in there. Uh, if you look at the accessories, it's predominantly copper and steel. Uh, and all recoverable.
1: And how do you process that down?
0: It's a chemical process that uh, TESAM actually will use in their Singapore facility. Uh, and the reason the chemical process is used, it actually uh, removes and separates the uh, metals, so it just makes them easier to recover.
1: And what is that chemical process? Do you know?
0: It's like a chemical bath that it's actually put into uh, and actually just separates all the, the metals at different points.
1: How about the handsets? Are these plastic? As I was looking around at the phones, I couldn't help but notice something. And that was that these phones look really old. You've even got, like, generation, old generation mobiles.
0: It's interesting. I mean, the phones that we get coming through the program are three, four years plus. So, you know, your old Nokia 3310s, they're still coming through the program. Um, And this is, that's a handset that's, what, 10 years old? It's Mm -hmm. still coming through. And it just highlights that people hold on to these old
1: devices. Because I still have my... Five and a half year old laptop still at home because I don't know. I've just kept it there because I don't want to throw it in the bin because I spent so much money on
0: it. It's interesting, you know, that that same behaviour where you hold on to your old electronics because you've invested so much uh, is the commonality across all products. And even if you look at mobile phones, people will hold on to old mobile phones because you know I spent a couple of hundred or a thousand dollars on this handset. Um, Two of the biggest reasons why people hold on to their old devices is just in case I need it. And that just in case turns into one, two, three, four old mobile phones. 42% of us have three or more at home. Uh, And the other reason is um, I don't know how to remove my data. So rather than figure it out, we tend to shove it in a drawer. Um, And it is small and it can be hidden easily in a
1: drawer. It's like, one day maybe we'll need this laptop that can't turn on. One day I'll need that Nokia that died five years ago, but if I have it in my drawer, not all is lost. And you never go back to it, and that's, the that's the that's uh, I think, the irony of it. The fact we hold onto our devices by just chucking them into the drawer is a problem. We tend to forget about them. It's not until the next spring clean that you find three or four old devices in your bedside table And then maybe if you're motivated, you'll hold on to them and take them to a mobile muster collection bin. But for most of us, we don't do that. We just chuck them in the bin. And these numbers get bigger and bigger. In 2014, the Group Special Mobile Association, the world's leading mobile phone trade body, announced there were officially more active mobile devices on the planet than people – and that the number of phones was multiplying five times faster than humans, meaning if two people are born every second, ten mobile phones become active in that time. We have become overwhelmed by mobile phone technology, and if we don't dispose of it properly, we'll become engulfed in e-waste. And as you'll hear today, that e-waste isn't limited to just mobile phones. Hi, I'm Jake
5: Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levita, And today you're hearing a collaboration between Think Digital Futures and Think Sustainability, where we'll be taking a deeper look at the world of e-waste.
1: But before we go into that, what is e-waste?
2: The definition is pretty much anything that's plugged into a power source.
1: This is Ashley Morris, a researcher from the University of New South Wales.
2: When you start to think about your own home, and say so you've got your computer, maybe a mouse, um, you might have a desktop and a laptop, and then you have a phone, but then you might have an iPad as well, and then you have a fan, and then you have an electronic toothbrush, and then you have maybe an aircon in one of the rooms, a refrigerator, a dishwasher, a kettle, a toaster, maybe you have a sandwich press. It starts to like really, really add up when you think about how many items in your house you really do have.
5: And if you were to weigh all the electronics that were in an average Aussie household, it would break the average household set of scales. Your home has an estimated 350 kilos of electronics in it, which is the equivalent weight of four average males.
1: That's literally four of me. <laughs> yeah. And this is just the stuff that's working. When it comes to e-waste, we've got it coming out of our ears.
5: Australia
2: actually produces 600,000 metric tonnes per year, which is a staggering figure and one that sees us far exceeding what's produced in other developed countries around the world.
1: So if we go back to that cars analogy, that's about 600,000 small cars worth of e-waste. Spread out across the population, it's about 35 kilos worth of e-waste per person per year.
5: So if you're living till you're 80, you're going to produce the equivalent of three cars' worth of e-waste in your lifetime – 2,800 tonnes.
1: Obviously, it's not sustainable to have all these electronics pile up at the end of their life. But the problems with your electronics aren't just at the end of life – they're at the beginning. If we look around to our office, our home, our world, if it's not grown, then it's probably mined. This is Damien Giocco, a professor in resource futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. The importance of having a supply
3: of metals available to societies and future sustainable societies has been linked to prosperity historically. We've had the Iron Age and Bronze Age and so on. And now we're in the what you might call the, the high-tech age.
1: If you open up your phone or laptop, you're going to find all those minerals and metals Spiro was talking about earlier. Those lithium ions, silvers, coppers, all lodged inside.
5: And the problem in the high-tech age is we use a lot more of these minerals and metals than we used to.
3: Whereas a few hundred years ago, you might have seen four or five or six different types of metals going into a windmill. Now into a high-tech wind turbine, you might see 40 different types, but they're in such small quantities,
1: whether it's to make brilliant magnets. Using different minerals has allowed us to make technologies more efficient and powerful, but the practice of mining itself continues to do more and more damage to the environment you hear so much about how much the mining industry will contribute to global carbon emissions. Mm. But why is that? Like, is it the actual practice of mining into the ground or is it by what is powering that practice? It is the crushing of rock.
3: So that is currently what uses so much of the energy. So they'll put in some dynamite and blast out. I mean, some are well underground or some they call open cut. We you just, you know, have a like a large shovel and scoop and progressively larger hole but once you have the big chunks of rock then in order to have access to the parts of those rocks that are the valuable mineral you need to put it in an enormous crusher they call it a sag mill
5: that's short for semi-automatic grinding mill
3: which just turns over and over on itself to to progressively make the rocks smaller and then you'll get in those small particles uh, hopefully a higher balance of valuable mineral or or the metal you could think of it like a mechanized rotating drum like in in a front-loading washing machine that's going around and around with rocks in it but you know much larger and then they you know selectively use different techniques
1: like floating all the, the valuable parts off and concentrating them further The catch-22 is that to have all the devices we use today, our phones, tablets, computers, TVs, to have all these, we still need the minerals we get from mining to make them. We do. And the ones that we're using and
3: needing are changing. So if it's that phone, I'm imagining still going to be a lot of metals in the phone. I think we're still going to need some uh, mining unless we get much, much better at closing the loop.
5: The practice of mining isn't the only thing that uses a lot of energy, but it's also the making of the devices themselves that's energy intensive.
6: I mean, one of the the big things for a lot of manufacturing is the water that it takes globally. Fresh water and water supplies are, are a big issue.
5: This is Dr Neil Gordon, lecturer in computer science from the University of Hull in England.
6: And again, what's happening more and more is that some of the manufacturing, which is more pollution causing, is being displaced into poorer countries where there's less efficient ways to make things less concerned about pollution because of other imperatives that they have. And Equally, the energy cost of the computer, the energy they use when running them is relatively low. About 80% of the energy that a computer will have over its lifetime comes from the production energy. And again, if we move that production to countries where the energy production is still fossil-based, then we're creating lots and lots of energy pollution to make these things.
5: Probably the best thing we can do to make these devices less of a burden on the environment is to use them as long as possible.
6: Well, given that so much energy is used in creating the device, and again, things like CPUs, silicon chips, the various metals and chemicals that are used in the circuit boards and the chassis and the entire case, there's so much energy in creating those, extending their usable life as far as possible reduces the yearly energy value of that device. So yes, if we can make something last a three year um, replace cycle, extend its life to five years or six years, that's better. Except we don't. Once upon a
1: time, you'd buy a product for the long haul.
5: Like a washing machine. I called my mum to double check this today because she had her first washing machine for 25 years. The second one she got, it lasted 10 years, which is still a pretty good stint, but it's not a quarter of a century.
1: And that's due to a range of things, like the fact it's often just cheaper to buy something new than get it repaired. But with a lot of these electrical devices, it's a little bit more insidious. Just think of your phone. Six months after getting it, the battery life begins to deplete faster, meaning you have to charge it more often. You get frustrated, so you just go out and buy a new phone. This early death or deterioration of devices is something called planned obsolescence. And it's an idea that has been burdened on the consumer
4: Basically, after you know the industrial revolution and the 1921 collapse of the economy, people in industrial and kind of economies start to think about how we need to change
1: people' consumer habits. This is Benjamin Golon. He's a media artist and also an associate professor at the New School Parsons Paris, and a lot of Benjamin's art deals with the idea of planned obsolescence because at the time people would buy something to last
4: and to keep for a long time and they would fix it or they would, you know, want things that last for a long time, except we were already mass-producing goods, so they needed people to buy more and consume more.
5: The term planned obsolescence was first coined by this guy, Bernard London, who is well known for his 1932 paper Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence. And in this paper, Bernard had some pretty crazy ideas.
4: So the proposal of Bernard London in this tax which was not really uh, approved by the government at the time but his idea was to create a use by date on anything a table a chair a car and forcing people to buy something when the date was passed or they would pay taxes.
5: Taxed every time I don't go out and buy a new smartphone give me a break.
1: Pretty crazy and this idea has stuck some 85 years later and uh, according to Ben is probably most common with our smartphones.
4: If you use glass, that's break, you know, it will of course break. If you are using plexi or other thicker material that maybe you can uh, polish over time or whatever and refurnish the tops when it's got scratches or whatever, it would work as well, you know. It doesn't need to be glass. They really are this strategy of making things fragile because they look nice, it's uh, pure, but then it's not very practical as a design or it's not very safe. So this is really, for me, um, uh, it's not an accident. You know, when you design such a product, there's a lot of thought brought into it. So it just didn't happen like that by a random chance. So it's really, for me, a strategy to make things fragile. So you are more likely to buy a new one very soon.
1: So there's the exterior, but what we were talking about as well is the interior. So it's like mm-hmm. you have a glass surface that would be easy to crack. And then you mm-hmm. kind of have a battery inside that they designed to be like, oh, that would last well and good for a mm-hmm. year and a half. But after that point, mm-hmm. it just kind of goes womp womp.
4: Exactly. And it's glued, so you can't even take it out. Mostly laptops are problematic because they are smaller and smaller. But to achieve that... They are really making a design that you can't really open anymore. You can't, for example, uh, the, the batteries are glued, so you can't actually take them out or replace them. When if you think of early computers, they were literally thing you could open and put your finger into it and add parts and make it better, which is something that I really think we are losing fast uh, and in an accelerating way.
1: And this sort of thing isn't just happening to laptops and phones either. There was a hacker that
4: figured out that uh, his printer stopped working. And when he opened it, he saw that there was a chip in there that basically counted the number of copies and make the machine stop working
1: after X amount of copies.
5: That's totally sneaky, but explains so much.
1: And there's more. To bend the hardware itself is only one part of technological obsolescence. The other part is something he calls perceived obsolescence. And that's how we, as the consumer, engage with these technologies.
4: And that's to do with design and fashion mainly. So your iPhone 6 or whatever you had still works, but then the iPhone 7 is coming out and it looks cooler and you want to look cool, so you want to buy it. And that's where you will buy something when you actually don't necessarily need it because it's trendy or it's in fashion and, it's, um, and, you know, it's very hard to resist because those advertising and kind of communication strategy are playing on very primitive instinct and those things are quite difficult to, to fight if you're not really uh, aware of it.
5: The idea of perceived obsolescence has been a major influence behind a new artwork of Ben's.
4: Basically, I'm creating a series of portraits of people by looking at their broken phone. Very often those screens break because, of course, they're made to break. It could be made of material that don't break.
1: but He will line up a piece of plexiglass, another type of glass, on top of someone's phone screen. And then he'll trace the cracks on the phone screen... Onto this plexiglass.
4: And um, when they break, they become more personal, right? So this phone that is mass-produced um, becomes yours because you know exactly where the cracks are and I, I find them actually more pretty in, the, in, a way, in a way that way.
5: When he's traced them out, he'll then carve out the pattern of the smashed phone with a laser cutter.
4: And the idea is to make um, a series of portraits of people through their broken phone. So it's each piece would have the name of the... The person and the date, and so on, like you would do for kind uh, of painting, you know.
1: Oh my um, God, that is so cool.
4: I find this, uh, again, what I talk about this aesthetic of plan obsolescence is something that, yeah, in a way, this accident become interesting in itself. And it says something about the way we use those devices and how they made and how they're really made to break.
5: The fact our devices expire is weirdly parallel to the human experience. For the most part, we start off strong, do what we're meant to throughout our lives, serve our purpose, before we slowly begin to lose power and eventually stop working altogether.
1: But unlike us, devices don't actually have to die. In fact, some don't at all. Some of them are able to live on and on. But it's us who are burdening them with this mortality. But it doesn't have to be that way. More after the break. Just,
6: just, 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 words, 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 words. just words.
5: Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable.
2: You can't say or do anything anymore. Otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this
5: the
1: pressing issue of our time. Just
3: Words is an original 2SER series. This new podcast goes beyond the hype and headlines of our race discrimination laws and gets the true stories from those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. New episodes will be released every Monday, starting from February 27. To listen, just head to iTunes or your favourite podcast app and search for Just Words. Subscribe today.
5: You're listening to a collaboration between Think Sustainability and Think Digital Futures. Today, you're hearing what to do with e-waste.
1: So we've looked at how these devices are resource and energy intensive to make. And on top of that, they're designed for the dump. We're putting all this effort into making these devices only to chuck them out a couple of years later.
5: I kind of think of it like making a meal. You spend hours slaving away over a hot kitchen stove and need to put the plate in front of your partner or kids and have them devour it in a matter of minutes. All that work gone like that. Surely there's a better way to divert all this energy into something more useful.
1: Well, for starters, we could try and repair our devices when they break. This is Aaron Lewis Fitzgerald.
5: And I'm the founder
7: and managing director of Bright Sparks. Bright
5: Sparks was a pilot program that finished up mid last year.
7: The program was set up to reuse and repair small electrical appliances so they don't end up in the landfill.
5: If you had unwanted or broken electrical appliances, you could donate them to Bright Sparks. These would then be restored or donated to people in need. Or if they were in good working condition, they could be sold to a new home. You could also pay to have your electrical devices repaired.
1: The problem was this looked good on paper. Only Erin and the team at Bright Sparks underestimated exactly what they were dealing with.
7: Well, I coined this term called cupboard procrastination syndrome. And I came up with it after we were doing some market research before Bright Sparks opened. And I noticed people starting to say the same things. And one of the things they would say is that they had stored appliances in their cupboard that weren't working or that they didn't need because they didn't know what to do with them. And so they weren't really sure. They are like, I know this probably shouldn't go into the rubbish bin, but I don't know what to do with it. So they stored it in their cupboards. And I think that's part of why we saw the car loads, is that everyone had stored it, not in just their cupboards, but their sheds. And so then as soon as we came along and said, we know what to do with these things, people came in droves.
5: And this is where all the problems started. First, the e-waste people were bringing to Bright Sparks. Well, it was hard to diagnose what was wrong with the device because they couldn't even open it up to look under the hood.
7: A lot of things that we got weren't actually that simple to diagnose, and sometimes we couldn't even get things open. So sometimes it became a group project. Um, We had a stick blender, for example, that nobody could figure out how it opened. And so (laughs) I had a crack at it. We finally had a volunteer who looked at it and understood how to do it. But it was like a secret trap door. Then... The stuff people were bringing in, often it was just junk. There were people who brought things to us and thought, well, this item is not good enough for me, but it should be good enough for someone else. So we had quite a few appliances that had maybe like a broken knob or like the toaster lever wouldn't stay down or the lid you had to hold on manually. You couldn't, you know, like a food processor in order for it to work. Um, And there were a lot of people who thought, I don't have the time or inclination to get this professionally repaired, but Bright Sparks will magically do this out of the goodness of their hearts and then it'll go to a better place. So in a (laughs) lot of ways, there were some people who were, yes, they might have been lovely people and I have to say the people we met were the loveliest people ever, but there was also a lot of absolving of guilt.
5: And I'm totally guilty of having to absolve my guilt like this. I do it a lot with CDs actually I have heaps of CDs that I just don't want anymore, but I think maybe someone somewhere really, really wants to have a copy of my Avril Lavigne CD from 2002.
1: Avril Lavigne, let go. I've already got a copy, but I'll take yours as well, Ellen.
5: (laughs) You can never have too many
7: Avril Lavigne CDs,
5: but I think, Jake, you are the exception to the rule. The big learning from Erin's
7: experience is... We found out that e-waste is actually not worth anything and nobody wants to buy it.
1: Brightsparks ended up spending more money recycling other people's donated e-waste than they made from selling repaired electrical items. But one interesting thing did come out of Brightsparks, and that's the people who did want to pay to repair their items.
7: The amount that someone paid for the item originally often had no correlation to their willingness to repair it.
1: Aaron says a lot of people were coming in to repair things that had sentimental value, or they would pay to repair something as a gift for their parents or their grandparents. And then there was a whole other category of people.
7: And sometimes people didn't have any emotional attachment to the item at all, but they were just so mad about planned obsolescence. So Mm. it was just like, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm getting this thing repaired because I know it's the right thing to do.
5: And the people who were bringing these items in for repair weren't doing it for the environment or the warm, fuzzy feeling you get from doing good. They were doing it as a form of protest.
7: It's also about that issue of taking control back and the fact that if you buy something, you're the owner of it and you should be able to decide when it dies, when it's time to throw it away. It shouldn't just be up to crappy manufacturing. So, you know, there was a lot of that too. It it wasn't necessarily the wholesome good fuzzy vibes that people were trying to get, but it was more like, I'm sticking this to the man because I think this is not right and I think things should be made better.
5: The art of repair is something we've lost in the last few decades. When was the last time you saw a TV repairman or you opened up the back of your fridge to replace a compressor? It's a combination of keeping up with the Joneses, buying new tech being cheaper than repairing it and repair being nearly impossible because of the way things are manufactured. It's all combining to lead to the cycle of more and more e-waste. But maybe if enough people see the benefits of repair, well, we can make a dent on stopping all of this ending up in landfill.
7: Repair does get some of that stuff out of landfill, but it also has the ability to provoke a conversation. It's more than just the repair itself. It's a symbol. But I also think that it helps us start the conversation with manufacturers to say, look, these are the kind of things we're getting, these are the kind of problems that we're seeing that need to be repaired, and we need to do better.
1: As Brightsparks has shown, repairing all 600,000 tonnes of e-waste isn't going to get us anywhere, as the economic incentive just isn't there so what are we going to do with all this stuff we have currently
5: well not much you went to TSM and you heard about bright sparks want to hazard a guess as to how much e-waste actually gets recycled in Australia
1: a lot in a lot of boxes I'm not good with numbers
5: <laughs> it's actually only 10% wow of that 600,000 tonnes is getting recycled each year. So that's 60,000 cars recycled and 540,000 cars just going to landfill. Gee. Ashley Morris from UNSW says it's up to our local councils to deal with all this waste and what they do with it, it varies from council to council.
2: I mean, all of the councils seem to be doing something different. Some of them will do their best and pull apart what they can. So they'll take off the immediate valuable items, so some of the the metals, so the copper, wiring, maybe um, some of the tin, the aluminium, anything they can pull off quickly, safely, and in their ability to do so, they will. Or others do have those partnerships set up with an e-waste professional recycling body where they'll call them and they'll
5: take a container away. Others just landfill it directly. Or sometimes our e-waste just ends up overseas under the guise of being recycled, You've probably heard about the e-waste junkyards in countries like Ghana where people, mostly children, pull apart the electronics to get the valuable parts.
2: And in the research that I only did last month, it showed we had a computer that was from one of our largest banks was being pulled apart by a child in Africa, in Ghana. And this was only last month. And that bank has gold stewardship status for environmental management.
5: Erin's research found five containers of Australian e-waste are ending up in Ghana every month. And there's no way we can stop it because we don't check every container that leaves the country. And shipping our e-waste off to developing countries? It's actually illegal under an international treaty Australia has signed, known as the Basel Convention.
2: So we signed up in 1992, and it's basically to prevent the transport or the shipment of hazardous waste goods across to these countries but Australia right now and what I said in my research is that we are breaking this convention we are definitely not committing to it in the way that we should and it's very dangerous for us to have signed up and then
5: not taken the action to prevent this happening so hang on so we signed that in 92 which is what 25 years ago and this is still a problem (laughs) huge problem absolutely huge
1: In saying that, the federal government has tried to do something. We do have a national television and computer recycling scheme that operates under an importer pays model. So if you import televisions and computers and all those accessories, you have to pay for them to be recycled. Ashley says it's a step in the right direction, but it's a drop in the ocean.
2: It is only two products and a couple of their little things that go along with them, like your keyboards and your mouses. And that's honestly not enough to even curb the problem that we're dealing with in this country. When we look at when we say 600,000 metric tons of e-waste is being produced per year, this is in even scratching the surface.
5: Compared to other countries, not only are we consuming more electronics and creating more e-waste, we're also recycling less. Ashley has researched how other countries tackle their e-waste, and there are some countries, like Switzerland and Sweden, who are recycling 90% of their e-waste.
1: Meanwhile, we're binning 90% of ours. But even if we did manage to recycle more of our e-waste, Damien Jerko says we're still fighting an uphill battle with a system that favours digging up minerals from the ground because it's easier. I mentioned
3: earlier you might find more concentration of gold in your mobile phone than you might in some gold mines that aren't so high quality. But overall, the tons you'll find in the mine are greater. So that's the situation we find ourselves in now. As we take more from below ground to above ground, it could be different in future.
1: Because people thinking there's more of a quantity there and we can immediately just mine that source and have it as opposed to have a million mobile phones and, you know, salvage like a tenth of gold of what might have
3: been in that mine. exactly. And there's more for a business who's looking to invest in that, there's perhaps more certainty because you can keep digging and keep finding more. More people need to come together in what we might say is a networked arrangement or, or we need to do the collection, the sorting, the reprocessing. There are many more parts that need to come together to get the recovery of... For example, gold from mobile phones working well uh, from products that we're we're using.
5: I guess what you should think about is where these products go when they're put in the bin. It shouldn't be a case of out of sight, out of mind. You should be thinking about the life cycle of your electronics before you leave the shop. Here's Erin Lewis Fitzgerald again.
7: So it's kind of that idea of bringing it back a step further. Instead of saying, consume as much as you want, and when you're done with it, give it to charities, and they'll deal with it, and it'll all be fine. It's saying, no, really think about the stuff that you have now, and when you buy something, thinking about what is the life cycle of this item? Am I gonna have it forever? Is it something that I'm going to look after or am I just buying this like on the win? you know, but actually thinking what kind of problem is this going to create down the line?
1: But we can go back one step further and say manufacturers and product designers also need to think more about the life cycle of the products they're creating.
5: We need electrical devices that can be easily taken apart and fixed and devices that can be more easily recycled at the end of life. Dr. Neil Gordon.
6: Again, it's trying to get designers to think about that. So when we build something which is very good to look at, but equally it's something that can be taken apart easily to to extend its lifespan. And ultimately beyond its lifespan can be taken apart and the bits used and extracted for recycling purposes.
5: But the thing is, we know we can design this stuff to last for ages. We've got satellites in the sky from the 60s and 70s. Surely we can design consumer products here on Earth to stand the test of time.
1: About to blow your mind. We've already done that. Seriously? So let's go back to 1932. Bernard London had just written Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence. And this was when those industry workers and economists were thinking about how they could design things to die so people would just keep buying more stuff, even if they didn't need it. One of the first things that was brought up was light bulbs. Light bulbs? Yes. All the producer of light bulbs decided to sit
4: together and define a duration of a light bulb.
5: I guess that's pretty good economical thinking. You know, your light bulb will only last a couple of months tops, you go to the shops, buy a new one, and you just repeat, 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 repeat.
1: Sorry to break it to you, Ellen, but that's wrong. According to media artist Ben Gorlin. It's exactly possible to make a light bulb last forever.
5: Forever. No way.
4: Yeah, and apparently... And there's actually one light bulb that uh, I think you can see somewhere in the U.S. in a fire station that's been on for 100 years. Really? Uh, yeah, because the filament is so big that it doesn't break. And it's really simple. <laughs> you can do that. But Do you know what the this... light bulb is called? I, I can Google it. Uh, wait, light bulb. Uh, there's a, a webcam on it so you can watch a uh, video stream. Uh, it's called Lever- Livermore's... Centennial light bulb, I think.
1: That's Livermore's Centennial Light Bulb. And it lives at forty five fifty East Avenue Livermore in California at the Livermore Pleasanton Fire Department. And it's your pretty standard light bulb. Aside from the fact that it's been burning since nineteen oh one. I'm looking up images of it now. It's literally just like a light bulb with like a cool looking circuit thing inside of it. Yeah. So we can design this stuff to last decades, if not hundreds of years. But the big question is, as humans, whether or not we want to.
4: So there is a clear intention from the people who make those things to to make sure that you don't keep them, which is worrying and also has an impact on the environment.
1: This has been a collaboration between Think Digital Futures and Think Sustainability. Ellen, if listeners want to hear more from you, where can they go?
5: Subscribe to Think Digital Futures on your favourite podcast app without your phone now. And just type it in now. You won't miss a moment. Uh, you can also head to 2SER.com forward slash Think
1: This show is supported by 2SER and the University of Technology Sydney. I'm Jake Malcolm. See you next time.